Well, good evening, Hallows Church. It's good to see you. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. I'm uh, helping with the North Expression, getting that expression up and moving forward by God's grace. And it's been uh, an exciting journey thus far, and we're very hopeful and expectant about the future. Uh, but it's always good to be back here in Fremont, uh, especially in this way, as we can open our Bibles together and explore God's Word. And so let's do that now. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, the passage uh, we just heard a moment ago. And this passage, as we step into it, there's a lot going on here. It's a pretty remarkable passage. It's a dense piece of text in every way. It's really bursting with meaning and implication for us. And what seems to be pretty hard to miss here is how Paul is really uh, reveling in God's grace as he writes these words. He's marveling at God's goodness and His grace as he opens things up in this letter to the churches in Ephesus. Now, in the original Greek language, this this passage, these 12 verses actually make up a single sentence. They make up a single complex sentence. Now, over the years, of course, translators have broken the passage down into multiple verses or sentences in an effort to make it more manageable and understandable for us, but that's not how it was originally recorded. Originally, this was a single and continuous uh, outburst of adoration by the Apostle Paul. And various commentators have uh, searched for metaphors vivid enough to describe uh, what Paul's getting after here. A guy by the name of William Hendrickson compares these opening words by Paul with a snowball rolling down a hill, picking up volume and momentum as it goes. A guy by the name of uh, John McKay says that Paul's adoration in this passage is comparable to uh, the overture of an opera which itself contains many of the same melodies that would flow and follow thereafter. And Armitrage Robinson says that this opening verse by Paul is like a preliminary flight of an eagle, rising and circling around, as though for a while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he would take. And there's a very interesting structure to this text as well. And the structure of this text shows us something important, I think, that's often actually overlooked. We actually see the entire Trinity uh, at work in this passage. Now, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is the triune God, one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. And what we see here is all three members of the Trinity acting together in the work of salvation and in their plan for our lives and for this world with the Father purposing our redemption, the Son securing our redemption, and the Spirit applying our redemption in the here and now. And what's interesting as we think about gospel clarity today is what this, is, is what this passage has to show us in that regard. Now you see there are various ways one can answer the question of what is the gospel. For example, one way is to offer the biblical uh, good news of how You can get right with God by trusting in who Jesus is and and in what he's done. And this is to understand the question to mean, what does it, what must I do to be saved? But in response to the same question of what is the gospel, one could also talk about the biblical uh, good news of what God will fully accomplish in history through the salvation of Jesus and through the sending of the Spirit until the time that Jesus Christ returns a second time. And this is to understand the question more along the lines of of what hope is there for this world? 
And one of the things I love about this passage here that we're exploring today is that it has something to say about both of these. We get an up-close and sort of microscopic view of the gospel distilled down to its concise form in verse 7 when it says this, it says, in Jesus we have uh, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And that's the core and the crux of the gospel. That's the, that's the very heart of the gospel right there. God coming into human history as the man Christ Jesus to, to live and to die and to rise again. Also that you and I by grace could be reconciled to the God who created us. But then we also get to stand back and survey so much more in this uh, passage in and through and what's going on in and through the gospel in this world and where things are headed in a bigger sense. Now, the gospel can indeed be explained and presented simply. The Apostle Paul shows us that quite clearly on a number of occasions. But at the same time, the gospel cannot be tamed into any single or uh, simple formula that must be recited to, to every person and every time and in every place. The gospel, rather, it's multifaceted, it's multidimensional, there's a certain irreducible complexity to the gospel. It's infinitely rich, and you can explore it for a lifetime from, a different, from different angles and, and perspectives and still never get to the bottom of it. And so let's explore this passage together with these things in mind. Let's see where God, through the Apostle Paul, takes us today in this text. And one of the first things I think that will become clear from the Apostle Paul right out of the gates here is that when we're talking about the gospel... And the hope that it offers to us and for us, our hope truly has nothing to do with us and it has everything to do with Him. The source of our hope that the gospel provides has everything to do, in fact, with the initiating grace of God the Father. This passage, in fact, has very little to say about you and I other than perhaps the problem that we created and the gifts of grace that have been extended to us in the gospel. But what we see here, in fact, is that it's God the Father who is the, the subject of, of virtually every main verb in these opening verses. And listen to these verbs which are describing the things that God has done and, and is doing for us in the gospel as Christians. And what we see when we look at it in this way is that the, it's the Father who uh, blesses us in verse 3. The Father chooses us in verse 4. He predestines us for adoption as His children in verse 5. He freely bestows on us His grace in verse 6. This literally means He graced us with His grace. In verse 8, we see He lavishes His grace upon us. And in verse 9, he, it says He makes certain things known to us. Now, each and every one of those things finds their origin and their intent in God the Father. And then as we turn from those verbs to the object of those verbs, in other words, uh, what it is that God is blessing us with and why God is doing all these things in the first place and that sort of thing, when we look at it that way, Paul uh, refers in quick sequence here to God's blessings in verse 3, to God's love in verse 4, to God's grace in verse 6, to God's plan in verse 10, to God's will in verses 5, 9, and 11, and to God's purpose in those same three verses, verses 5, 9, and 11. 
And so the initiating grace of the Father is truly, uh, it's bubbling up and spilling out of this passage as the source of all of our hope. And this shows us, I think, a truly critical aspect of the gospel that we must never lose sight of. It shows us something about what we'll refer to here as the outside-in aspect of the gospel. Now, what I mean by that is our hope truly is not in ourselves or anything we do. Rather, it comes entirely from the outside. It comes from outside of ourselves. We receive God's grace and His love and His blessings in the gospel from the outside in. Now, traditional religion would say otherwise, right? Religion says that God's acceptance of us is something that's earned. It's based on what we do, and it's based on how well we do it. But what Paul says here, and what the entire New Testament as a whole says uh, as well, is that when we're talking about the gospel, God contributes everything, and we contribute nothing except for our sin and our need. What we see quite clearly here and elsewhere is that the source of any and all hope that we have for our lives and for our futures is not a result of us or anything we do. It's not something we achieve by trying harder or doing more or or measuring up, but it's a result of God's plan and God's gift of the gospel extended to us in Jesus. We see the same sort of thing as well one chapter later in Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul would say uh, in no uncertain terms that, that even when you and I were dead in our sin and with no solution and no hope, God the Father made us alive together with Christ. And verse 8 of chapter 2 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And what this means is your efforts and your performance, however sincere, however serious, and however steadfast, can never and will never put you right with God. They can never and will never earn you anything from God either. Now, traditional religion says if, if I do good deeds and follow the rules with my external behavior, God will accept me. If I'm a good enough person, God will love me and and let me into heaven. If I double down and and try really hard to get my life in order and shape up my act, God will bless me in my life. But as we'll see here, the gospel is actually actually the the reverse of that. The gospel is essentially the, the opposite of that. It's not about what we do, it's about what God has already done. And that changes everything. That should change everything. You see, if you and I know in our hearts that God has accepted and loves us freely by His grace apart from anything we do, we can begin to follow Jesus and we can begin to uh, align ourselves with what He says out of an inner joy and gratitude rather than out of things like fear or pride or insecurity. As Christians, we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by our works, but by His. And once we gain an understanding of that on the inside, it can really revolutionize how we relate to God and how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to other people as well. Paul could not have insisted more forcefully in this passage that that our becoming members of God's family 
is due neither to chance nor to choice, but to God's own sovereign will and pleasure. Paul says that is the decisive factor by which every Christian becomes a Christian. And so, friends, you did not become a Christian because you figured things out on your own and you arrived at the truth. Rather, this passage would say that you're a Christian because God planned and purposed that you would be a Christian from before the foundation of the world. And if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, I want to suggest to you that uh, you're not here by accident. I want to suggest to you that perhaps the reason you're sitting here in this moment is because God is he's wooing you, He's pursuing you, and He's drawing you in because He loves you in spite of you. You see, the gospel is not at all about who you are or what you've done. It's all about who He is and what He's done. And He's a good and, and gracious Father. And in verse 10, Paul says he, uh, that, that He's a Father who has a plan. Paul starts talking about God's plan here, God's plan for the fullness of time in verse 10, that Paul says the Father is making known to us in Jesus. And Paul leaves no room for confusion here that this plan, God's plan for humanity and for the world, while it starts with the Father's initiating grace, from there it moves towards and centers squarely on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so whereas the source of our hope is in the initiating grace of the Father. The sphere of our hope is in every way flowing and finding its basis in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We touched on that in regard to verse 7 a moment ago, right? And we'll circle back to that again in a moment. But, but first, let's not miss the fact that Jesus is mentioned in these opening verses, either by name or by title or by pronoun, no fewer than 15 times. And so there can be no mistake as we talk about the gospel and as we talk about gospel clarity that it all truly centers on Jesus. And one of the things we're going to see here is how Jesus and how the gospel really holds up a mirror to us in a sense at first uh, in order to uh, expose the bad news to us and about us so that we can really begin to understand and appreciate the good news. You see, the gospel exposes our most fundamental problem. And in a very real way, our most fundamental problem as a people and as a race is our broken relationship with our Creator. And that's why verse 7 tells us we're all in need of redemption. We're all in need of grace. We're all in need of forgiveness. Sin has fractured our connection to and our relationship with our God, and there is no more fundamental problem than that. In fact, the Bible would say that virtually all human problems, whether individual or social, whether cultural or systemic, are ultimately only symptoms. And it is our separation and our alienation from God that is the fundamental cause of it all. And so our alienation from God is not something that stands alone in isolation. Rather, it has pervasive and permeating effects in our hearts and in our lives and in the world around us. Our alienation from God, vertically speaking, is the very reason why we experience uh, alienation and fracturing within ourselves internally and, and psychologically speaking. And as a result, we're prone to struggle with all sorts of things like guilt and shame, things like depression and anxiety, with things like fear and, and pride and idolatry. 
Not only that, but our, uh, our alienation from God in a vertical sense also causes alienation in a horizontal sense. We're alienated from one another socially, relationally, and emotionally. We point fingers, we compare, we look down. We think that the problem is always out there rather than in here. And so our fractured relationship with God also causes fracturing and uh, disunity in how we see and relate to other people. In addition, the Bible would also say that as a result of sin and our broken relationship with God, we're, we're alienated as well from the physical creation itself, from nature. And as a result, we experience things like physical degeneration and decay and death, which were not a part of God's original design and intent for us and for this world. Every dimension of reality as we know it is affected by this most fundamental problem. And so vertically and, and horizontally and internally, there's always tension. There's always strain. Things are never quite right. We never feel fully settled or satisfied in our lives. We always think we need just a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that to be happy. We never quite become who we know we could be and who we know we should be. And think about this. Humans have made incredible advances and achievements in, over the course of human history in virtually every area of human pursuit. And yet the condition of the human heart does not seem to be advancing at all. And the Bible says unequivocally that, is a, that it's a result of this most fundamental problem. Sin has fractured our relationship with God, and the fracturing of that relationship ripples and reverberates into every other dimension of reality as we know it. We also see here how the gospel not only exposes our most fundamental problem, but it also in every way addresses our most fundamental need. If our separation from God is our most fundamental problem, then our deepest need would be to have that gap closed, right? to bring us back into right relation with our Creator and to restore that vertical relationship that is causing everything else to come undone. And it all goes down in verse 7, really. We read it earlier and we'll read it again because it all comes down to this. Verse 7 says that in Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now the Greek word translated in your Bible there is, as redemption is an interesting, interesting word. In our culture, the word is often used to refer to the exchange of coupons or that sort of thing, to redeem a coupon, to receive a discount on a purchase. But to Paul and to the Ephesians in that time, in that place, this Greek word translated as redemption, it had a different sense altogether. In fact, the word was most often used to refer to the act of, of paying a ransom in order to purchase a person out of captivity who had been kidnapped or enslaved. Perhaps the most famous example of this at the time was when a young Julius Caesar was kidnapped by a band of pirates who forced his family to redeem him, to purchase his life from those who were holding him captive. And his family did pay the ransom and they did secure Caesar's freedom, but they then proceeded to capture and to crucify those pirates who had done this. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul uses language here of slavery and ransoms he uses language that suggests that you and I and every person on this planet is somehow captive and enslaved 
apart from Jesus? And we see similar language used throughout the Bible. In fact, in Jesus' first sermon recorded in the Bible, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus uh, stood up in the synagogue and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 61. And basically he said this, he said, I'm the one who God promised would come to, to open the eyes of the blind and to set the captives free. And it may not, have, may not have been clear at the time, but it's clear now that Jesus was talking about spiritual blindness. He was talking about spiritual captivity. So Jesus there and, and Paul here is saying that, that nothing short of a ransom would be needed to free us from this, from this fallen human condition that binds us. And Paul says in verse 7 and in all of his writings that the payment has been made by the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Matthew and Mark would similarly say that payment has been made in full. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for example, Mark would tell us that Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You'll find the gospel explained and defined in different ways by different people in different contexts. But verse 7 really gets after the heart of the gospel here. And the heart of the gospel must always and invariably variably center squarely on the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our trespasses against our God. And if we're going to be clear on one thing, we're going to be clear on that. You're going to hear us talk again and again here at the Hallows Church about our redemption and our rescue purchased with the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sin. You're going to hear us talk again and again about the resurrection of Jesus and about how he rose from the grave to conquer sin and Satan and death, to prove that he was who he said he was and to guarantee that he would carry through all things to completion. You're going to hear us talk again and again about God's grace in doing for us what we could not have ever done for ourselves. And these are life-changing truths that we recount and rehearse regularly and repeatedly in our hearts and in our lives. We are saved indeed by believing the gospel, and then we are uh, transformed in every part of our minds and our hearts and our lives by, by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. And that's exactly what we intend to get after each and every week as the community of faith known as the Hallows Church. It's a remarkable journey to follow Jesus in this world, because once that vertical relationship is restored, you will start to see other things happening in your heart and in your life and in the context of Christian community. The various dimensions of our lives begin to cohere and kind of pull together in some interesting ways as we put our trust in Jesus and we, as we uh, step into the plan that God has laid out for us. And verse 10 tells us something about that plan, about God's plan for the fullness of time. And it says that God's plan is to unite all things in Jesus, to unite all things in Christ on heaven and on earth. And this word unite in verse 10, it can also mean to gather together or to, to kind of sum up. But based on the way that Paul uses this word, we're also given a sense that Paul is talking here not merely about uniting all things, He's talking also about, uh, really about uniting again all things, or reuniting all things. And when we think about that, and Paul's choice of words here, the, the implication is that uh, Paul is talking about bringing something back together 
that was once united and held together in harmony, but that at some point began to come apart and began to degenerate and deteriorate and disintegrate. And that is, after all, the overarching biblical narrative as we stand back and see the storyline of the Bible and see where it started and, and what happened and where it's headed. God created everything and it was good in Genesis chapter 1. Then things went bad in Genesis chapter 3 as Adam and Eve decided that they knew best. They had a better plan for their lives than God did. And that was the turning point that fractured all of human history by fracturing our relationship with God from that point forward. But Paul says God has a plan. He's corrected course for us on the cross and through the resurrection. And his plan is moving forward to ultimately unite and pull together all that is fragmented and divided in our hearts and in our lives and in the world. So we've seen here how the gospel both exposes our most fundamental problem and how it addresses our most fundamental need. But there's something else here, I think, that we also always need to see and understand about Jesus and what he did and how he did it. Because I think it's actually one of the ways we follow Jesus and participate with him and align, our, align ourselves and our lives with God's plan. And what I'm talking about is something we'll, we'll refer to here as the upside-down aspect of the gospel. Now remember, we already mentioned the outside-in aspect of the gospel in which God contributes everything to our salvation and we contribute nothing. And that's astounding, that's humbling in every way. But this upside-down aspect of the gospel is equally worthy of our, of our awe and our adoration. Think about this. God could have done anything He wanted with His creation. He could have left us to ourselves when we went our own way. He could have blotted us out entirely. But instead, just as He promised in Isaiah chapter 43, rather than blotting us out, He blotted out our transgressions. He says in that passage, Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions, get this, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, he said. Friends, he didn't have to love us. He didn't have to pursue us. He didn't have to have a plan. He didn't have to redeem us. He doesn't need anything from us, and he never has. But he does love us, and he does pursue us, and he has redeemed us. And the way that he does those things truly flips everything on its head. The way he did and does those things is entirely unexpected and, and upside down. But in a way, it also shows us a way forward. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. It says, Though he, he being Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so that's talking about Jesus being fully God, taking on human form and human flesh and surrendering himself in order to address our most fundamental need for us. It's a remarkable thing. And in doing these things, in the ways that he did, Jesus ushers in really a, a complete reversal of values and priorities for us. There is something truly subversive and mysterious about all this. It doesn't make sense according to the wisdom of this world. 
This is the complete opposite of the world's way of thinking, which really places ultimate value on things like power and recognition, on things like success and status. But Jesus, he shows up and he says, the last will be first, and the first last. He shows up and he says, if you want to find yourself, you need to lose yourself. He says, the poor, the oppressed, and the persecuted will be lifted up, while the rich, the recognized, and the satisfied will be humbled. Christ came in weakness. He came in humility. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to bring judgment against us, though we certainly deserved it. Rather, he came instead to to take on that judgment for us. He exercised power through submission. He achieved victory through defeat. It's upside down entirely. But that's our example. Jesus, he's setting a new type of agenda for us in a most unexpected way to follow his lead as we participate in God's plan. Now, we talked about the grace of the Father as the source of our hope. We talked about the sacrifice of the Son as the sphere of our hope. But we also see in this passage, in verses 13 and 14, that it's the Holy Spirit. It's the promised seal of the Spirit that reminds us and assures us of the certainty of our hope. We're reminded here of the present tense dynamic of being a Christian and serving Jesus in this world and in our city because the gospel truly is not merely about something that happened in the past and it's not only about something that's going to happen in the future. It's also about something that's, that's happening right now. And even though the gospel is truly not about anything we do but about what's been done for us, the gospel nevertheless gives rise to a whole new way of living and a whole new way of approaching this life. You see, when a person puts their trust and their faith in Jesus and the redemption he secured uh, for them on the cross, the Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence in them. That's why verse 13 says that when you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this Greek word translated in your Bible is sealed, to be be sealed by by the Holy Spirit in verse 13. It's an interesting word. It's a word that in that day was used to refer to to a mark of ownership or a mark of authenticity. You see, a seal would often have been affixed to a document to guarantee its genuineness. A seal would have been attached to items that were in transit to to indicate ownership and to ensure their safe arrival at their final destination. Animals were often branded with a seal by their owners in order to indicate to whom they belonged. But of course, such seals were external in nature While God's seal is on the heart, he puts his spirit within his people in order to mark them as his own and to teach them and to guide them and to empower them on mission for him. By giving believers the spirit, God seals and stamps you and I as his prized possession. This very thing, in fact, was promised hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. In places like Ezekiel chapter 36, God promised that he would first gather a people for himself. He promised that he would somehow cleanse those people, which we now understand to have been pointing to the work of Jesus on our behalf hundreds of years later. But in verse 26 of chapter 36 of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, God said this. He said, there's coming a day when I'm going to give you a new heart. He said, I'm going to put my spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone. 
And the New Testament is clear. That's exactly what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out in power on God's people. The New Testament also makes clear that that's exactly what happens when a person becomes a Christian as well. God puts his spirit within you and gives you a new heart. And in a fascinating way, in doing so, God begins not merely to change the desires of your heart, but to give you entirely new ones. And the truth is, according to the Bible, it's the same Holy Spirit, and not not you or I, who is ultimately responsible for opening our eyes and illuminating the truth of the gospel and for giving us a new perspective and a new purpose and a new set of priorities. All of this coming from the outside in. Verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit also is our guarantee that God will bring His people as His possession safely to their final inheritance. And this word guarantee, it comes from a word used back then by traders and merchants to refer to the first installment or the the down payment in a commercial transaction. It involved paying a part of the purchase price in advance and thereby securing a legal claim to what was being purchased and to what would later be acquired. But in this case, the Holy Spirit is not something separate from what God guarantees to us, but He's actually the first portion of it, the first portion of God's very presence dwelling with us and in us in the here and now. And so in giving us the Holy Spirit, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it. At the end of the age, God will redeem His pledge to bring about nothing short of a new creation altogether, a new heavens and a new earth that we're told in Revelation chapter 21 that where there will be no mourning, no more crying, no more pain. It says the former things have passed away and death shall be no more. So that's where things are ultimately headed. And Paul regards the Holy Spirit as the first installment of the Christian's inheritance until it is fully and finally received. But in the meantime, the Spirit gives us assurance that these things will one day be ours. He assures us of the certainty of our hope, and He gives us empowerment to to push forward in what can be a challenging dynamic of living in an upside-down way in the midst of a culture that does not see eye-to-eye with us. But what's amazing about all this, about stepping into God's plan, is we get to see Jesus actively and dynamically working in the world today through the Holy Spirit and through us to build a new people and a new society within the old and to begin to heal and reunite all that is fragmented and divided in this this world and in our lives. And this is the forward-back aspect of the gospel. One of the reasons I say that is because the sending of the Holy Spirit to those who believe very much represents the future kingdom of God kind of breaking into the present day. The Holy Spirit represents the intrusion of the age to come and the new creation into the present age. He's our link between the world that is and the world to come. And the Bible does tell us what's coming. The Bible teaches that God's plan to unite all things in Jesus says it takes place in two main stages. At his first coming, Jesus redeemed us through his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins and gave us the presence of the Holy Spirit as our seal and our guarantee of the age to come. But we're also told that Jesus will come again at the end of time to finish what he started. We're told he's going to bring about a fully consummated new creation, a material world that's cleansed and healed of all brokenness. 
pulled together and healed and restored in each and every possible dimension. And so there's a very, very real sense in which God's kingdom has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God's kingdom continues to come in us and through us by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And God's kingdom will come in all its, all its fullness in due time when Jesus returns. As Christians now, we live towards that. We live in light of that future reality in a forward-back type of way. That future reality in every way fuels our our present participation in God's kingdom work here in the city of Seattle in the year 2017. So as Christians, we don't sit back and, and wait to go to heaven. We're active participants in an active and dynamic plan to, to reunite and to pull together all things in Christ in ways that they were intended to be. And I think this is one of the most exciting things about being on this Christian journey together as the Hallows Church. We get to participate together in God's plan. We get to watch Him uh, use us to begin to reunite and restore all of the disjointed and fragmented aspects of our lives and our communities. And this happens, I think, as we follow Jesus' lead by approaching our lives in the same upside-down type of way that He did. And so, friends, every time that we apply the gospel in our hearts and to our lives, there's a certain reuniting that's going on. There's a healing going on. Things are being pulled together and restored according to their original intent and design. Each time we put others before ourselves, each time we love our neighbor as ourself, each time we serve rather than being served, there's a reuniting and a restoration that's going on. Each time we forgive another when they wrong us, each time we extend grace to another who may not deserve it, each time we extend mercy to another in need, we're we're participating in the plan and we're contributing to the reunification and the healing of all things in Christ. Each and every time we do these things and live in these ways, we're participating in God's plan by pulling together that which has been coming apart since Genesis chapter 3. And so that's what we do together as the Hallows Church, reminding ourselves regularly and repeatedly that the the source of our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in the grace of God, that the center and the sphere of our hope is in Jesus, and that the certainty of our hope is God's very presence in us and among us by the Holy Spirit He sent for us. It's a remarkable passage we just explored. We see God the Father planning and purposing our redemption We see God the Son securing our redemption, and we see God the Spirit applying our redemption as the future kingdom breaks into the present. And don't miss what the Apostle Paul says about each member of the Trinity in verses 6, 12, and 14. Right after he talks about the Father, and then again right after he talks about the Son, and right after he talks about the Spirit, he says the same thing each time. He says, to the praise of His glory. And so let's echo that right now together as we close. To the praise of God's glory, that He would do these things, that He would do all of these things for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. We thank You for the the truth and the beauty of Your gospel and all that it means to us and for us, all that it promises to do for us in the future. God, would you challenge us and change us through this time together in ways that only you can. 
Would you make us a people whose hearts and lives are centered on the gospel? Would you make us a people who are stirred and compelled by your gospel to live and to love in upside-down ways for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.